and welcome to our 26th Rising Tide Ocean podcast. This is David Helvarg, our regular co-host, Vicki Nichols-Golstein, is unable to join us again this week, but we've got a substitute, my colleague at Blue Frontier, Natasha Benjamin. So welcome, Natasha. Hi, David. Very excited to be here today. And this week, we're talking with my friend, John Racanelli. John is the president and CEO of the National Aquarium based in Baltimore, Maryland. Before that, he was a consultant here in California, also has a long history with aquariums, including the Florida and Monterey Bay Aquariums. So a welcome aboard, John. And uh, let's start out by asking you how you first got involved or when you first fell in love with the ocean. Well, thanks, David. It's great to be here with you. Um, my association with aquariums does go back a ways. <clears throat> um, I actually, it, it goes back even further than the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where I was fortunate enough to be on the, um, on the, on the grand opening team. Um, I think that made me a founding flounder. I'm not sure. Um, but before that, even longer uh, ago, when I was in college, I had a summer job as a diver at a long forgotten Marine park on the San Francisco Bay called Marine world, Africa, USA. And it, it germane, my you, there. You, you know, that facility, it was on in Redwood shores. It's now the site of Oracle. Uh, the old ski lagoon is the lagoon that has the fountain out in front of the Oracle World Headquarters. But be all that as it may, the, the, the important part is that as a diver there, you know, at the age of 18 and 19, one of the things, really, I was an underwater janitor. I scrubbed tanks and vacuumed up well detritus <clears throat> and fed fish and loved all that. But I also got to swim in the dolphin tank. And that was really interesting to me. But it, it, it set in motion a lifelong questioning about whether or not that was the best life for those dolphins. And maybe later we'll come back to, to how that's played out in my life in the years since. We um, definitely will. So you were brought up in California? I'm a, I'm a California boy, a North Cal boy. I was uh, born in Sunnyvale and raised in the, in the Valley. Uh, went off to school at UC San Diego and UC Santa Cruz. Um, always loved diving, got certified in 1970. It uh, wasn't trendy then. Um, and uh, uh, I was a surfer and a swimmer and, you know, kind of like you, David, I've, I've always said, I've had a love affair for the coast, uh, as uh, somebody has once written. And um, that stayed with me wherever I've been in my life. So after college, uh, uh, was lucky enough to get my job at the Monterey Bay Aquarium uh, before it opened, got to work alongside the people that founded it. And uh, of course, got to work with Mr. David Packard, who funded it, who was a wonderful gentleman and an incredible conservationist. So I left the Monterey Bay Aquarium uh, in the, in the mid nineties to go become the CEO of the Florida Aquarium to build it and open it and, uh, and lead that aquarium for the first several years of its life. Uh, and we were really trying to replicate the concept of what Monterey what the Monterey Bay Aquarium had done for Monterey and for California in Tampa and for Florida. We told the story of water in Florida. It was a great ride. It wasn't the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's a great sort of second tier aquarium, uh, sees about 600,000 people a year. Um, but I, I tired of it. And I decided that that was not necessarily going to dis describe the rest of my career. And I went back to California uh, just before the turn of the century and started a consulting firm. And, and looking back, although it was, I can't tell you it was part of any grand plan, I'm glad I did that. Those 12 years working with Sylvia Earle, IUCN, the Surfrider Foundation, 
a number of great, you know, ocean-based NGOs, which is also when I met you, David. And it wasn't until 2010 when I was starting to wonder what was I going to do as an empty nester and our son was off to college. And I remember my wife and I were thinking about moving into the city and the phone rang and it was a, it was a search firm and they were looking for a CEO for the National Aquarium. And I, I went home that day and I said, gave me a perspective I would not have had if I'd stayed in the aquarium world for my entire career. I said to Susan, remember we talked about moving into the city? And she said, yeah. I said, what if that city was a little east of here? She said, what, Oakland? And I said, no, keep going. She said, we're not going to Reno. I said, no, I think you've got to go quite a bit further. How about Baltimore? And, and rather than saying what, she said, well, that sounds interesting. And, and that got us here. Uh, she was as, as intrigued as I was. And uh, we, I got here in 2011. It's almost 10 years now. Um, and it's been an amazing ride uh, taking this, this, this wonderful facility and, and group of people and really growing its mission to a more national and even global aspiration with a vision to change the way humanity cares for the ocean planet that sustains us. So the National Aquarium, which has been around for 40 years now, um, has had over 60 million visitors in its history, 6 million of whom are, are students that have come here free of charge to partake in various programs. So the numbers are always important, but I think what's even more important is We've really evolved it in my 10 years here from, um, from a great attraction that had some, uh, some good education programs to a conservation organization that has a great aquarium that carries that conservation message, I think, more effectively and more efficiently and, and further than it ever did before. And that vision is towards changing the way humanity cares for our ocean planet. Great. Thank you, John. I'm curious, you know, you talk about the millions of visitors that the aquarium had. How has the last year impacted your aquarium and how have you survived during this pandemic? Well, like everybody in the aquarium and zoo profession, um, it's been a really tough time. In fact, like everybody on the planet, it's been a tough time. We certainly had a huge financial hit. Like most U.S. aquariums, we are self-sustaining. We're a nonprofit, but you know we have to pay our own freight. And about 80% of the income that we receive comes through the gate, comes from people coming and various expenditures that they make. So being closed for 109 days and then being reopened at a much more reduced rate for the six months since then has definitely had its impact on us. Uh, we, we lost about $20 million in total revenue, which is a very, it's an appreciable amount of money anywhere, but it's a, a big percentage for us. Um, we cut way back on a variety of things. We, we, we managed to cut our expenses by about seven or 8 million. We did qualify for, you know, a federal paycheck protection loan and that kind of thing, but it was tough. And, and our team did an incredible job getting through it, reopening, redeploying everybody in different roles. Didn't end up having to lay off very many people. We had to lay off some people, about 20 people, but nothing like what many in our profession have had to face. So we count our blessings. We're back operating now. We're operating quite gently. It is really the best time in the history of the National Aquarium to visit because you get the aquarium to yourself. We keep the attendance down so so dramatically from its normal levels. One of the conservation approaches you've taken that certainly got a lot of uh, notice in recent years was when you got to the aquarium, there were dolphins there. And one of the, your first thoughts was that maybe dolphins don't belong in an aquarium. That goes back to when you were a young diver at Marine World Africa, USA, but now you had a chance to do something about it. What'd you do? You know, it, it is interesting. When I left Marine World, went back to college and then went on to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which of course has never had any cetaceans in its, uh, in its uh, 
operation. I remember thinking, well, I guess I dodged that bullet. That's others will solve that challenge. I knew even back in those years of the 80s that this was something that was probably reaching the end of its value to humanity. But weirdly, 35 years went by and I found myself here and suddenly the uh, steward of a population of dolphins that had been living here for all their lives. And yeah, I found that I needed to look at what what the future was going to be for those dolphins. And we convened a, a group of people, mostly our own people, but also some really smart people from outside. And we talked about what, what is optimal for dolphins now? And, and, and what is what does it mean for humans to care for dolphins? We've learned so much about their needs, their special requirements, their social complexity compared to the 1990s when this facility was built for dolphins, that we really felt that we had, it was time for a significant evolution. And that led to the decision that we announced in 2016, that we were going to move our dolphins to a, an ocean water sanctuary. Our goal was to get it done by 2020 or 21 right now. We haven't met that goal. There's a variety of reasons. Most of them are either financial or frankly, climate change driven. We set our sights on the Florida Keys for a number of years. We explored 60 locations there. We found a beautiful island way down in the lower keys called Kudjo Key. Kudjo Key is, has the distinction of being where Hurricane Irma came ashore in 2018. So we realized that the Keys, unfortunately, as we think about housing dolphins for at least the next 50 years, if not longer, we're not sure you can count on the Keys to be a landmass in that time frame. Sea level rise, intensified storms. That's exactly right, David. And as a result, we we had to rule out the keys, which was really tough to do. We had looked briefly at other possibilities, Texas, other parts of Florida. But then we started thinking about the Caribbean and, and that led us to Puerto Rico. And, and we will build the sanctuary in Puerto Rico. Our goal is to complete this project and have the dolphins there by the end of 2023. We have found a fabulous bay there. We're working with the, there's a wind farm adjacent to it. We're working with the wind farm owner to get a little patch of land to, to put the landside facilities. But what really matters is the bay itself and it's optimal. It's ideal for, it's the kind of place dolphins live. And I think that's the issue that we, we came to was we can't provide dolphins with the kind of habitat and the kind of living conditions for which nature has superbly prepared them over the last 80 million years. We can't do that in an aquarium setting. Try as we might, we could we could put a, a, a biodome over the entire inner harbor out my window here and still come up with a fairly crummy replication of the world that dolphins were built for. And, and so uh-huh. this sanctuary isn't just for your five or six dolphins. It would be for open for others. That's correct. Uh, our goal is to, first of all, to establish a facility that could accommodate up to 20 dolphins. And I should note that we've had calls from several other entities in the dolphin trade who have also confronted the fact that they too want to find a better way. And it will not be hard. In fact, it will be too easy to fill that sanctuary with the 20 dolphins that we think would be its capacity. In fact, where I see it all going is that there will be a network of these facilities around the world, certainly in the tropical belt, the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, Asia, Australia. And these will be the the place where the 3,600 cetaceans now living in captivity will eventually find their way home. And uh, presumably, we will all adhere to the idea that we're not going to breed the dolphins in those settings. They will be the last ones to 
potentially live in human care. And then a 100-year experiment in, in one species having dominion over another, well, maybe, maybe in a best case, it could come to a close and we could get back to just enjoying dolphins and whales where they thrive in the ocean. Thank you, John. You, you've spoken about how the aquariums have changed and in terms of dolphins and cetaceans and aquariums, a lot of things have changed for aquariums, including conservation messaging. Can you talk about how the National Aquarium has incorporated that into their programming? We have a conservation action plan that we have made really, we've kind of lifted to the top of our, our, our hierarchy of needs. It has three basic overarching goals to combat climate change, to save wildlife and habitats, and to stop plastic pollution. So these are really strong verbs, combat, save, and stop. And that's because we need to take this thing on. I'm not telling you to anything that you don't know, and probably your listeners. We collectively, we humans need to get our act together. And we believe, as do many of our peers, by the way, that, that we have a, a great kind of bully pulpit for doing this because we do attract so many people. We touch so many millions of others through the various social media means and other you know, vehicles that we have. But on site, while here, having this kind of emotional bonding experience with each other, with their, with their family members, their loved ones, and with the animals that they get a chance to, to see, and in some cases, through the glass, interact with, this is a time when the, you know, the, the, the funnel's open, and it's a great time to be able to pour into that funnel some of the, some of the ideas that we're trying to cause our public to capture. So, so we have a, a team of people who are professional interpreters of climate change communication. They work both directly on the floor with our guests, but also training every other staff member to communicate climate change in ways that aren't intimidating, that aren't frightening to people, but are nonetheless compelling and create a sense with people that they can make the difference. And that's really our, our central tenet is that through that conservation action plan, we want people to walk away believing that they can help combat climate change they can contribute to saving wildlife and habitats, and they personally can make a dent in the plastic pollution crisis that we're all facing. Right. And with aquariums, aside from collecting wild fish, there's this movement of breeding some incredible species like sea dragons. And Actually, it's becoming a, 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 a real driving force for the, um, for the accredited aquariums in the U.S. and beyond. We now breed, I think, 45 different species of fish. And, and it's so, it's really surprisingly simple. We harvest eggs and then we incubate the eggs. And oftentimes the eggs that we're harvesting and incubating, we don't even know the species until they start to grow out because they are, you know, at the egg stage, a lot of fish look pretty similar. But the good news there is that we've had some remarkable breeding successes in species that are common and popular in public aquariums. And that obviates the need to go out to the ocean and collect for them. There are very few species for which that is an issue right now. Collecting for public aquaria does not have the impact on the environment that collecting for private collections does. That's where some of the, you know, Dory and what's his name are unfortunately collected in huge numbers. And so Nemo, thank you. So anemone fish and other small tropicals that are very popular thanks to movies like those 
are, are at risk now because so many people want to have them in their home aquariums. But that's part of our message too, is to, just to talk to people about the fact that we can, we can enjoy the natural environment. We can get little moments of, of windows into it, but we don't need to capture everything and collect it and put it into small boxes at homes throughout the world. And of course, the aquariums are, are educating both to the wonders and warnings of the sea. I mean, you know, the, the reproductive strategies in the ocean are pretty amazing. I don't think Disney with Finding Nemo was ready to admit that that if his mom was lost to a barracuda, then his dad would within three days transform to become his new mom. The hermaphroditic aspects are something that, that I'm sure, I don't think Disney's figured out a way to interpret yet. But we love telling people about it at the aquarium. Kids love it. They're always blown away by some of those kinds of facts. That's a beauty. I think even further than that, too, we focus a lot of our time and energy on rescue. Um, and all aquariums do now. And that's become a central role. We built a facility a mile from the aquarium specifically for that purpose. It has two purposes. One is to care for animals that we bring in, whether quarantining or in our case, uh, now culturing corals to, to, to support Florida Reef Track Rescue Project, uh, which is a joint venture of, I think, about 20 aquariums in the U.S. now. We're all growing out clusters of about 27 different species of Florida corals, all of which, stony corals, all of which are at risk from this wasting disease that's been attacking the Florida coral reefs now for several years. We're all keeping these, these genetically safe and, and non-infected colonies and growing them out in our aquariums, back of house. Ours is in the Animal Rescue and Care Center with the ultimate in, and, and with a partnership with Florida uh, Fish and Wildlife in hopes of being able to repatriate some of these in the areas that have been hardest hit by the, by the disease. So you're growing like endangered elkhorn and staghorn corals and, and at the same time you're rescuing a, a animal wildlife. We just saw with a, a climate-linked coal snap in Texas, thousands of uh, coal shock turtles that had to be rescued, sea turtles. The single biggest cold stun event in the history of America um, that we know of, uh, at least since humans have been hanging around the beach. And so I think it was 4,000 animals were rescued. I saw some pictures that were just stunning. I mean, they were just rooms full. Now, that's a short-term cold stun event. Those animals were marginally stunned. I mean, they were still stunned and they were hurt. The bigger event that occurs annually now in Cape Cod is, of course, the, the New England cold stun, which in its worst years has, has affected over, has brought in well over a thousand turtles. Of course, all, all sea turtles are endangered, but Kemp's Ridleys are particularly so, and then greens and some loggerheads. And those are all brought to aquariums like ours. We've got 18 of them over in the Animal Care and Rescue Center as we speak. This year, we named them after constellations, which is kind of cool. So you've got Andromeda and Cassiopeia, which is a little more activating than two years ago, which was breakfast foods, where we had mocha and, uh, you know, McMuffin. No, 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 turtles should all be stars. <laughs> exactly. Not, not exactly. edible names. <laughs> not edible. It just didn't work for me. Anyway, the good news is they don't stay here long. We, we, they're, they're rescued on the beach. There, they've been severely stunned, in many cases, hypothermic, secondary injuries, pneumonia, eye injuries, shell injuries. As they get more and more lethargic, they're, more, they're less and less able to defend themselves against rocks, and boats, and surf. When they get to the beach, sometimes their, their, their temperature, their core temperature is at the ambient temperature, which can be in the 30s. The team up there at the Wellfleet, Wellfleet Rescue Center brings them ashore, triages them 
starts the process of bringing them back up to functional temperature. We continue that after they are either trucked or flown down to facilities like ours, and then ultimately treat them for all the other secondary issues. We've released now, I think the number is, um, we had 128 sea turtles last year that came through the aquarium, in fact, went down to Florida, and then in summer were released off the beaches here. And then there's the seals, and the seals are a sight to behold. Our team got real clever this year and they named them after storybook characters. So last year's primary star was Pippi Longstocking. <clears throat> she was here for eight months because she had an ear infection. We just got in two new characters. One is Eloise. She's not at the Plaza Hotel though. She's at the Animal Care and Rescue Center. And now Stuart, Stuart Little? Yeah. yeah. Is that the mouse? Yeah. Yep. So they're over at the rescue center. One's a gray seal. One is a uh, harp seal. And these little guys are both pups, both somehow separated from their mothers, still maternally dependent, still in a very serious growth mode and needing to learn how to eat fish and catch fish. So that's what our guys teach them. And sometime this spring, they'll both go out to Assateague National Park and we'll turn them loose into the ocean and track them for a couple of weeks, make sure they're on the right track uh, and get them into the world again. So it's really a wonderful role that zoos and aquariums play. And I'm pleased to say that in the COVID relief bill, which I believe is on its way to the president today, it includes a, for the first time ever, some funding for Fish and Wildlife Service to provide support for organizations like ours that do this rescue work so that we can keep doing it on behalf of our government and do right by endangered species and actually cover the cost. And protect our coastal communities, both uh, human and wild. Exactly right. So I know the aquarium has uh, done a lot of outreach and engagement with people in the community, and maybe you could talk a bit about that. Here in Baltimore, what we've seen is that there is a huge level of interest in, in finding ways to improve communities, to, to re-green areas, to plant trees in these communities, to establish the nation's first urban wildlife refuge here at Masonville Cove, which is now a a completely wonderful little nature area with, a, with an interpretive center that we co-operate with several other nonprofits and with the Fish and Wildlife Service, where we now, you can now see nesting bald eagles, you can find red foxes, um, you can find uh, 27 different varieties of nesting and uh, of migratory seabirds. You know, there's just all kinds of, of, of moments of truth that you can see in a setting like this if you learn how to look. And that's what we're working with a lot of our residents to do. And that is something we hope to export further and further afield to our peers uh, in the aquarium and zoo world for you know a long time to come. I wanted to add one thing that you reminded me of. One of my first jobs uh, when I was in college was at the New England Aquarium, working ah. rearing lobsters and jellies. And I think that was instrumental for me and I'm sure many other young people, their exposure to the aquarium, internships at the aquarium. I was a docent at the aquarium. That was a turning point for me um, in terms of my career in ocean conservation and marine science. And I, I just, I want to highlight how important those aquariums, especially in urban settings, how critical they are for reaching youth and reaching young people and, and really catapulting them into the ocean conservation world. That is so true, Natasha. I, I really, I think that is probably one of, the, one of the most important functions that we serve. We've created around the floating wetland that we've, we've now prototyped out in the water here, just outside the aquarium. We have a 140 square foot floating wetland 
which is a lot of work to maintain. The, the problem with floating wetlands is that the more successful you are, the more biomass you grow on the floating wetland. As that biomass increases, the floating wetland has a terrible tendency to sink under its own weight. So we've created a virtual submarine style one that has ballast tanks, aerators, lift stations, a little creek in the center. Um, it's become a home for a variety of species, but, but most importantly, it's the test bed for what will be a huge complex that, that will comprise uh, from, from 140 square feet to, to 14,000 square feet. And already we're using it for a program for sixth graders in the Baltimore City School District called What Lives in the Heart. The kids come down, they spend a day here. Well, in pre and post COVID times, they will have and will. They postulate what they're going to find. They then, we drop some little trap nets out around the floating wetland and bring up various animals that are in those. We drop some cameras in the water to look at some of the sessile organisms and some of the other uh, encrusting organisms. And then we show them some video of some of the episodic visits that we've had. They end up seeing American eels, of course, blue crabs. Uh, we had a nesting blue heron on the floating wetland last year. He ate a lot of the fish around it. <laughs> he was really having a good time. And all told, uh, dozens of species of animals and, um, and birds and even a muskrat who showed up one day in the winter when the thing was covered in snow, spent the night and then swam off the next morning. So these kids are getting this great experience right here and they're fulfilling a, an important state curriculum requirement called uh, a MIWI, a Meaningful Watershed Education Experience. And the funny part about that is, or the sad part, until we came along, a lot of teachers in public schools in this city would take kids to a storm drain in order to get their MIWI. That was how they told them about this fabulous system called the Chesapeake Watershed. They'd say, well, okay, this is a drain. Now this leads to a pipe that leads to a storm drain that leads to the bay, that leads to the harbor. And now they can actually bring them down to the water. And, and for some of these kids, they don't have that much interaction with the water until this program came along. So What's the program called day. again? It's called What Lives in the Harbor. And it's amazing what the kids come up with. The, the single biggest surprise for the kids is that things live in the harbor at all. They, they go into it thinking, I didn't think anything lived in that harbor. And they start seeing American eels that are, that are, that are growing out before they make their epic migration to the Sargassum Sea to breed. A, a thousand mile migration, these little eels the size of a, you know, a garter snake. Or they learn about the, you know, the life cycle stages, the blue crabs who molt now on the floating wetland in the little creek safe from predators for that terrible day when they're at such risk because their shell is as soft as tissue. And then they harden up and they swim up. Um, so they're, they're learning all these really cool stories about the microhabitats of, of the Chesapeake Bay. And, and, and that's just so satisfying to see. And these are hopeful stories. The New York Bight, the, the Boston Harbor, the Inner Harbor in Baltimore, which is life's coming back. And nature is incredibly resilient once we start doing the right things. I think oh, true. I'm very optimistic. I'm very hopeful about both the outlook for uh, that kind of work and also the outcomes that I think will result. I believe that our nation has figured out it needs it needs responsible, you know, it needs responsible adults in charge. And we may be in for a eight to twelve year phase where the government gets that too and wants to support the work of organizations like ours. Baltimore is 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 a is a city that is full of hope and full of opportunity, but it's been it's also a city that has, you know, a lot of people that, that have had a really tough life and, um, and a high 
very high poverty rate here. Seventy-five percent of the kids here are on on school lunch pro on you know assisted lunch programs. So we want to break that cycle. Um, we do believe that environmental justice is social justice. They're 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 immiscible. They are one two sides of the same equation. And in our work around DEI and J, we've made it our trademark to be the ones that are looking out for and trying to create opportunities around uh, more equitable environmental justice in cities like ours and others. And I think that's a role that, that is going to keep us busy for a long time. Um, on the broader question of aquariums, as long as we can continue to create habitats in these controlled microcosmic settings that we, we have, that replicate as faithfully and as realistically as possible the real world that we're that we're trying to, to present to people. Um, as long as we can do that, we we have a job to do, and it's 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 a noble one. Now that you're in Baltimore, how do you get your uh, ocean stokes these days? They're fewer and further in between, especially in the off season. Um, I do get out to the coast. I've learned to surf um, Cape Henlopen, which is in Delaware. In fact, it's uh, just down the way from. Joe's Beach House. Actually, the first real trip that Susan and I will be taking this year is to Puerto Rico uh, next month. And it is in part to do a little bit of business there to talk to some of our colleagues that we're, that we're working with. But um, we're going to slip over to Rincon and spend five days there. And I think she's going to be at the pool and I'm going to be in the, in the salt water. I need that salt water therapy. I, I do miss it in the winter months. Diving in the tanks here is fun, but it kind of gets so you. It's, it's like knowing your backyard. You know, sometimes you need to get outside. There's nothing like warm saltwater therapy after spending a winter in, on the East Coast or up in Northern California here. My ears and I don't miss the, the, the cold NorCal waters. I, uh, I had eight cases of surfers here in my time there, so it's, uh, I'm not missing that part. I hope you get some great sets at Rincon, and uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you both, and thanks for the work you do, both of you. I know it is, it is meaningful, and it's broad-reaching, and I, I applaud you for it. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with hosts David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbark. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true. It's the blue frontier, tear, tear, off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.